It's not a secret handshake. That much further into the avalanche dragon's den. I should really know, are those shark fins or those dolphin fins? Welcome to episode 2.5 of the Avalanche Hour podcast presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. With additional support from Black Diamond Equipment and Peeps, I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I hope you all have recovered from stuffing yourselves over the Thanksgiving holiday. It seems like everyone cranking up their ovens for the holiday must have had something to do with a lot of snow melting throughout the western United States. Warm temperatures and rain to high elevations did a number to the snowpack of many regions. Looks like cooler temperatures are on tap. Hopefully we get a return to winter here soon. Remember to keep an eye on those north-facing upper elevations that have been holding snow since as early as September. Well-developed facets are the story there. When these areas are loaded with additional snowfall or wind-transported snow, it will certainly be game on. Unfortunately, there was an avalanche fatality at Hatcher Pass in Alaska on the day before Thanksgiving. A 60-year-old man who was an experienced backcountry skier and former ski patroller died after an avalanche was triggered on a wind-loaded slope on Marmot Mountain. The avalanche failed on a persistent weak layer of buried near-surface facets, and the path of the avalanche traveled through a rocky gully, ending in a terrain trap. Our thoughts and vibes go out to the family, friends, and community of Randy. Well, we haven't had too many entries on our current giveaway. Your odds are pretty good right now. It's time to shift your beacon practice into gear. You can be entered to win a pair of Black Diamond's guide gloves by snapping a photo of you or your partner practicing beacon searches. Just tag at the Avalanche Hour podcast in an Instagram or Facebook post and you'll be entered to win. It's almost too easy. With the holiday season around the corner, I'd be willing to bet some of you have one of those fancy airbag packs on your wish list. They can be a great tool in your toolbox of avalanche safety, but can never take the place of good terrain and snowpack assessment, communication, and sound decision making. A few years ago on a spring ski trip to Alaska, I had just been dropped off on a glacier for 10 days of skiing with a couple partners. After setting up our camp, we headed out for a quick evening tour And as I grabbed the shoulder strap of my pack, the airbag prematurely deployed. Well, shit. I looked over at my partners who were laughing. I looked at Tom's fully charged Jet Force pack with a jealous eye. My next airbag pack purchase was a Black Diamond Jet Force pack. Here to talk about the line of Jet Force packs is Pete Gompert, a design engineer with Black Diamond. Okay, we got Pete Gompert here from Black Diamond Equipment. Welcome, Pete. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good to be here. So probably four or five years ago now, um, I had a few few minutes in between projects. Back in the day, my boss asked me to look into uh, designing an airbag pack because there was a lot of them on the market and BD didn't really have an offering. Um, so we started looking into it. We looked at all of the uh, canister-based systems out there. And honestly, we just found a lot of drawbacks to that. And it kind of seemed like that technology had progressed pretty far. And it, it didn't seem like we could really bring a whole lot to that at that time. Um, there's been some developments since then, but and they're getting better all the time. But we kind of saw the downsides to that thing, mostly being the fact you couldn't travel with it. Um, it was kind of a one-shot and done system um, and didn't have any really system diagnostics to it. So um, I started experimenting with a bunch of stuff. We tried... 
chemical reactions, big springs, all sorts of weird stuff. Um, finally, one day I, I grabbed a computer fan from the IT department in a garbage bag and I just fired it up on a battery to see what happened. And um, just that little computer computer fan was enough to fill up the garbage bag in, I don't know, 20 seconds or something, which isn't near fast enough. So um, we ended up getting online and I just found the biggest fan I could find, which was a, uh, it was a RC airplane jet ducted fan. Um, so we bought that, um, tried that out. It actually worked really well. We could inflate airbags really fast. So we built a bunch of protos with airplane parts um, and it looked pretty promising. So we started down that road. Um, one thing led to another and we developed a pretty cool system. Um, it runs on a We've since redesigned all the parts. Obviously, we're not using airplane parts anymore, but um, kind of optimized the fan for pressure and things like that. And as we got into it, we kind of realized that there was a lot of a lot of advantages to it. Um, batteries, obviously, you can charge at home. Um, the Jet Force has usually we can get four or five deployments at room temperature and at least two at um, minus thirty C. So um, that's pretty helpful. Uh, whereas with a canister system, you kind of have one shot and you're done. So if there's hang fire or anything like that, you're you're kind of hosed. Um, travel is huge. You can't travel with compressed gas cylinders um, on most airlines in the world, um, especially in the U.S. Um, batteries are fine. The type of battery that's in the Jet Force is lithium-ion, just like what's in your laptop or a Tesla car, for instance. And uh, they're totally legal on airplanes, so it's easy to travel with. Um, like I said, you can charge it at home, which is sweet, um, and multiple deployments. Uh, the other thing we kind of found as we were going through it is we could run that motor backwards and reverse the direction of the fan. So one thing that the Black Diamond system has that nobody else does is a deflation feature. So after a couple, I think it's three minutes, um, the fan actually reverses direction and um, we had to get a little bit tricky, but it opens the valve and it actually sucks all the air out of the, of the bag. Um, which can give you a pretty good air pocket if you do get buried. Obviously, the goal is to not get buried, but um, if you do, you can suck the air out, but at least you have some air to breathe that way. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the synopsis of why we designed it and what we do with it. Um, and right. Honestly, since it's been on the market, we've had some saves with it, and that's that's why we do what we do. Um, you, you hear about it saving somebody's life, and it kind of makes it all worthwhile. So. Pete explains some of the basic principles of how airbag packs work. It's the principle of inverse segregation, they call it. Um, simplistically, it's basically if you have a, a bowl of nuts and shake it, the big ones will come to the top. You want to be the biggest particle in the slide. And so the airbag, any airbag makes you the biggest thing. It's not a buoyancy thing. It's a size thing. So once you're the biggest thing, as you're tumbling, um, motion's kind of required, um, you'll hopefully end up on top or close to it because you're the biggest particle in the slide. You see an avalanche um, or think you're in trouble, you just pull the cord. Another big advantage of the jet force is you don't really have to hesitate because you know you have another deployment later. So if you're in a slough and you're scared, just pull it. There's mm -hmm. no hesitation. Um, you pull the cord, big loud noise comes on. It's the fan spinning. It spins at about 70,000 RPM, so pretty fast. Um, and just like any other airbag, it inflates right behind you. Um, it can, it inflates in under five seconds. Usually it's close to, depending on the conditions, it's between three and four seconds to full inflation. Um, our bag is bigger than everybody else's too. So it's 200 liters. Um, just because with a fan, you've got infinite air, you might as well just make it as big as you can. So, um, so it just inflates behind you. Um, after it inflates, it'll, the fan runs for about 10 seconds, just because we wanted to make sure that, uh, that it inflates, even though it only takes two. Um, and then you'll hear it um, power down a little bit and then turn off altogether. And then throughout the next three minutes, it'll do a bunch of refill cycles where it basically bur bursts on with the fan just to keep the bag full. Um, and that also um, can handle a fairly big hole in the bag too, which is another advantage of our system. We can pump more air in if you have a, if you have a hole. So yeah, that reinflation seems seems like it's key, and yeah. no other system has that. Just to keep it fully inflated, if you are getting tumbled down, um, taking a long ride, you know right. it's gonna you're gonna for sure have a full bag if unless there's a puncture. Yep. Well, um, even with a puncture, we can handle a fairly big hole mm -hmm. and still keep the bag pretty full, um, which nobody else can do, obviously, because once your gas is gone, you're you're done. Um, so yeah, that's how it works. And then after three minutes, which is what's required by the the standard, we have to stay inflated for three minutes. Um, it'll deflate. Um, 
you can also kill this. Like if it's a slough and you don't want to wait three minutes and listen to it, you can actually turn it off halfway through the cycle too and pack it, repack it manually. Mm-hmm. Um, then after, after the inflation cycle, deflation cycle, um, there's a manual valve. You can let whatever air's left in there out. Um, no special packing requirements. You just stuff it like a sleeping bag, zip it up. It takes about two or three minutes once you're good at it. And go skiing again. You've, you've still got more inflations in the battery, which is pretty sweet. So there's the flight, which is a zero liter um, for guides and heli services and stuff where we just want Abbey gear and nothing else. Um, there's the Pilot 11, which is a 11 liter um, slack country kind of pack. Uh, the Halo 28, which is our bread and butter kind of everyday Dawn Patrol style pack. And then the Saga 40, which is for guides and overnight trips, stuff like that. Thanks, Pete. Now on to the feature presentation. Today we'll sit down with Utah Avalanche Center forecaster Craig Gordon. Many of you have probably seen or heard from Craig in a variety of outlets. Craig has a larger-than-life personality and is an integral part of our community. Craig talks about his path as a patroller, forecaster, and educator, and highlights the Know Before You Go program that has put free avalanche education in the hands of thousands. From its humble beginnings to its current worldwide reach, Craig gives us the insights of how he and his cohorts have made it so successful. Here we go with Craig Gordon. Welcome, Craig. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, absolutely, and thanks for having me tonight. Yeah. So, Craig, I was hoping you could just give us a little bit of your background in the avalanche world. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I started out as a ski patrolman at Brighton Ski Resort in the mid-80s, so 1985 through uh, 95. So I was there for 10 years. And, you know, during that time, um, I started getting interested in snow and avalanches and really kind of this this moment, this life-changing experience. My third year as a patroller, I took a class at the University of Utah, and it was called uh, Snow Dynamics and Avalanche Forecasting. And uh, it was given by Peter Lev. And, you know, I sort of knew a little bit about what Peter did and that sort of thing, you know, that he was uh, an iconic avalanche person. And first class for like, you know, three or four minutes, maybe five minutes, he sort of intros to the class and rattles off his resume. And man, the light bulb went off. And I'm like, wow, you can make a living, you know, being an avalanche guy, you know, and I just, I I just got so fascinated with avalanches and everything behind it. Like, wow, I could, uh, I could really do something with this. I could pursue my passion and, you know, of course, part of that passion was skiing powder as well. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, you sort of had to had to satisfy the urge there as well. So, yeah, man, it's been a, it's been a great gig. So I was there um, at Brighton for 10 years. A few years after I had the epiphany with Peter Lev's class, Brighton went through actually a pretty sizable expansion. I was in the right place at the right time. I worked really hard and uh, basically kind of created a little snow safety position. And uh, yeah, from there, uh, I landed a job with a startup heli ski operation. And that was in the Uintas for a couple of years. And this has been my 18th season with the Utah Avalanche Center. So uh, a pretty good gig for, I guess, about 30 years of my math is kind of correct. <laughs> yeah, awesome. And you, and you forecast mostly in the Uintas still? Great. Yeah, yeah. So how it started with the, uh, with the Utah Avalanche Center, there was a position open as a snowmobile educator. Yeah. And uh, Tom Kimbrough, who was working at the UAC at the time, he's like, you know, it's not a forecasting job, but it'd be a great way for you to get your foot in the door. And I was looking around and it seemed like a really great way to um, you know, be associated with the UAC and with people that I already knew from my snow safety experience at Brighton. And it's, it felt like a really comfortable environment. And I landed that job. And uh, the beauty of it was midway through the season, we realized that there was a black hole in uh, kind of central Utah, the Manti skyline area. 
that had been the site of several snowmobile avalanche fatalities. We reached out to people there, and uh, Eric Trenbeth and I, he was a forecaster in the LaSalle's, and also did a part-time snowmobile education gig. We're like, wow, we could start forecasting here. And with the blessing of uh, the then-director, Bruce Tremper, man, we pulled the trigger, and in February, we created a little satellite operation in the Manti skyline. So that sort of led and opened up the door to the a forecasting position that I kind of created for myself at the Utah Avalanche Center. And so... To kind of speed forward a little bit more, um, I was there for three years, and then we got some funding for the Western Uintas, and I've been there ever since. Awesome. Yeah, pretty cool ride. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, so so what other roles are, are do you fulfill within the UAC? I know you do a lot of public relations stuff. Could you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I do a lot of media stuff, and so sort of... Uh, the face of the Avalanche Center, and I know you're thinking, now you got a face for radio. That's what you have a face <laughs> for. But it's really awesome because what I've realized in this ride with media is that using TV media is the best way that we can save lives because it reaches so many people. And if we have a watch or a warning or there's an accident or even on the flip side of that, telling people how good the riding is and how safe it is, is another way to really leverage this media um, relationship that we have. And what that's turned into is not only being that contact for the UAC, but also I've been able to uh, create and carve out a little niche with local TV, Fox 13. So I get uh, a little avalanche TV spot every Sunday morning. And it's a weekly wrap-up. I kind of get to, you know, do my own thing, show pictures, videos, and it's about five minutes. So it's really a an innovative way that we get our message out to the masses. Hey, it's not level one information, but, you know, for the most part, those aren't the people who are getting caught, killed, or injured in uh, avalanches in Utah. It's really kind of more our basic users, and it's just a great way to broadcast that message to them. So, yeah, I do a lot of um, uh, media work, forecasting, and then uh, liaison a lot with the resorts, and I've got a strong resort background. So that's a lot of fun, too, because, uh, you know, the ski industry here is a very strong advocate of uh, our winter sports. So, you know, keeping people on top of the greatest snow on earth rather than buried beneath us, that's our motto. And uh, one of the ways we do it is try to partner with as many people as we can. And the Utah ski industry is one of those great partners. And then finally, of course, avalanche education and outreach. And, And really that encompasses everything that I talked about. And that's Having boots on the ground and a, uh, a way to relay all of that information, something that's tangible, I think that's really where we're making a difference here. Yeah, and certainly that helps set the hook to some further avalanche education, I'm ah, sure. you like that little pivot there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, uh, so, Craig, you've had a, a big part in, in um, starting the Know Before You Go program. Yeah. Um, I was hoping you could talk about what that is and kind of how it started. Yeah, so Know Before You Go really is basic avalanche awareness for the masses. And how it started is that, and I'll back up a little bit, even though I really enjoyed my my Peter Lev U of U avalanche forecasting class and, you know, kind of embraced the science and the technical aspects of snow and avalanche forecasting, I realized, and it was mostly through educating snowmobilers, that this is a fire hose of very complicated information. And you could be the most dynamic speaker in the world, but man, when the information is far beyond the scope of what people want to digest or what they think is important, then you're really losing your audience. Mm-hmm. So with the snowmobile education, you know, I, I made it a little more basic. I didn't dumb it down, but I wanted to take key bullet points and address those to my user group, make them applicable, and then deliver it again in a, in a dynamic and fun style. 
And I realized that it was through this simplicity that I was really getting the light bulbs to go off. Know Before You Go kind of has its roots with that, with simplicity, but really where it hit home was uh, in the winter of 0304, December 26, 2003. During that Christmas period, we had a raging, raging storm in Utah. Winds are cranking 30 to 40 miles an hour out of the southwest. They're gusting into the 60s and 70s, right? We're getting really dense, heavy snow. I mean, it is just going off. Salt Lake Valley, in a course of just a couple of days, picks up 30 inches of snow, which wow. basically cripples the entire valley, right? I mean, there's something like 100,000, 120,000 uh, Utah Power and Light customers who have no Utah Power and Light anymore, <laughs> right? So it's this just ferocious storm. Day after Christmas, the resorts are doing all they can just to keep the resorts open, and it is, uh, you know, it's just raging wind, grapple, and really the lightning is what sort of set, you know, everything kind of sideways. So uh, lifts are having a hard time running just because of intermittent power outages, a couple of resorts closed down. And southern half of the Wasatch Range down at Sundance, they're having their own challenges, and eventually the lifts closed down just because of the, the power situation. Well, three groups who were not associated with each other, didn't know each other, they jump in their rigs and they drive about a mile and a half up the road to the Aspen Grove Trailhead. And underneath Aspen, or excuse me, above the Aspen Grove Trailhead is one of the largest slide paths in Utah, and it's connected with, uh, with Mount Timpanogos. And, you know, Callum, it is, just, it, it is just going off. I remember the day in particular because I thought, okay, I can't, I'm not going to be able to get up any of the canyons, but, man, it's prime time to go ski the foothills, which literally are just a couple miles from my house. Takes me about a half hour to go a mile, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just a full-on gong show out there. So, you know, I turn around. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to chillax at home. And later on that evening, I realized like, wow, it really hit the fan. So what happened is these three uh, groups who, who didn't know each other, they start hiking up individually. There's a total of over 14 people start hiking up one of the largest slide paths in Utah. And three natural avalanches start peeling off the north face or the north chute. And at any given time, nearly everybody or a large majority of these groups is buried and then spit out on top and buried again. I mean, it is just, it's chaos, right? At the end of the day, Three young men uh, from the Provo Orem area, they're missing. Nobody has any gear. It's just, it's, it's craziness. So this story makes national news. It makes international news. And I realized like, wow, man, this is, this is a real tragedy. You know, at any time it would be a tragedy. Day after Christmas, it's, mm -hmm. that, that's, it's that much more heavy. So it takes about a day for, you know, the dust to settle literally and metaphorically and everybody gets into their staging areas and there's dogs and probe lines and they find one of the young men. A week later, they find the second young man. And then it was Easter Sunday when the snow was finally melting out that they found the third young man. And what was particularly poignant was that I think to anybody even with rudimentary snow avalanche weather skills, you would realize just how dangerous this day was, you know? And I thought, wow, these guys probably just didn't even know the basics. For all I know, they didn't even know how to spell avalanche. Mm -hmm. And so given that, you know, maybe our sort of customary avalanche awareness talk would have been too much information. Maybe it would have been enough. I mean, I, I would never know. But the thing that really struck me was, number one, that it kept in our news cycle. So it wasn't just a one and done and, you know, it was sort of over because, 
I mean, the bodies kept on being found, you know, and even though there was three of them, it was like, you know, a day later, so that made news, and then a week later, and that made news, and then it was like, wow, all the way into April. So it got churned up all the time, and it was at that point that uh, shortly thereafter, we had a staff meeting, and uh, the director of the Utah Avalanche Center, Bruce Tremper, who I've got to credit to being able to simplify a complex message and having just such a beautifully articulate way of delivering it and making it fun and exciting. And as a sidebar, I remember as as a young avalanche guy, you know, like in my 20s, late 20s and early 30s and, and going to a Bruce Tremper talk. And I'm like, wow, this guy is awesome. He's energetic and he's animated and he's like, wow, this is, you know, this is what I want to be. Who wouldn't want to be like sure. this, you know? So Bruce was brilliant in that delivery. And at this staff meeting, as we discussed the uh, the fatalities, you know, we all kind of realized like, wow, we really need to do something, you know? And I said, well, why don't we put together an avalanche awareness program, you know, for teenagers? Because that's what these guys were. They're like 17, 18, 19. And Bruce says, you know, well, we've already tried that. And I said, yeah, but man, maybe it's just not dynamic enough and edgy. And we need edgy, mm-hmm. you know, you need something <laughs> edgy. And and I had seen, again, kind of the the approach had always been, you know, even though you could be dynamic, maybe it was a little dry. And I mean, how does it relate to, you know, some young dude in an audience? And so Bruce, you know, I I clearly remember him saying, you find the funding and create the program and it's yours. And uh, you know what? One thing, a guy from New Jersey, you give us a challenge, man, and we're going to take that. (laughs) Maybe not the proverbial bull by the horns, but, um, you know. (laughs) Jersey strong. Jersey strong, man. Exactly. Just like Bruce uh, Springsteen, not Trevor (laughs) in this case. So, yeah, you know, we get this dialed in and it takes me a summer. And uh, I was fortunate enough to connect with TGR, Teton Gravity Research. They trusted in us. They gave us footage for this project that was like, like unearthing some sort of, you know, some sort of monumental footage that had never been seen before, much less given for free for a program like this. So you got to realize at that time, and it's the summer of 04, and I'm looking at a launch for the, the fall of 04, winter of 04, 05. You know, avalanche footage is just starting to become mainstream, okay? So this is before like iPhones, you mm-hmm. know? So, and it's before GoPros. And so high quality avalanche footage you know, Warren Miller had a little bit of it, some of the matchstick production stuff. But man, TGR was really pushing it. You yeah. know, they're out on the edge and they're filming this stuff. And so it was high quality footage. I found a um, an editor in Ketchum, Idaho, and we spent hours and hours and hours and hours editing film. And I knew that this had to be short, it had to be concise, it had to be edgy, had to really grab your attention. And uh, I had a rough edit and I debuted it at the um, the ISSW of 04, which was in Jackson. And uh, it was in front of all of my peers and in front of all of these avalanche professionals. And, you know, man, it just rocked the house. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is a critical audience. And they're digging it, you know? We made some tweaks as we went into production with it. But as we rolled it out to the schools, I could could just sense that kids were digging it and a young audience was digging it. We dovetailed that with a dynamic 20-minute PowerPoint presentation. And that year, man, I just worked my tail off. And along with forecasting... Um, I think that year I banged out something like 60 or 70 avalanche awareness talks at schools. So back to back to back to back, you know, from one part of the state to the other. And my goal that year, 0405, was to talk to 5,000 kids. And I wound up talking to 12,000 kids. 
And so, oh man, it, it was just, it was so remarkable. I was so, so stoked. And, you know, the, the stoke superseded the exhaustion, man, you know? And it was really, it, it has just been such an awesome ride to watch this program grow and watch the different iterations of it and to think back that in the early years, how I would um, manage forecasting and media work and, and my own outreach and sled outreach. And then, you know, uh, you know, maybe I tone it down to 40 or 50, you know, before you go talks, but I had this great farm team that I developed. So we would meet in not necessarily dark alleys, but certainly in, in dark mountain passes to hand off, you know, PowerPoint projectors and the latest version of a video. And it was just, it was, it was such an awesome ride, you know, and I look back like, wow, man, we were on it. And this farm team was totally stoked. And they were mostly young patrollers who now fast forward uh, 12, 13 years later, you know, have become... Uh, managers and patrol operations or snow safety people. And what's great about this, Caleb, is just to see how that approach from being sort of technical and kind of dry and having to know about depth or and facets and rounds and, you know, stuff, this language that you and I speak, right, which to me is just like, is like jazz, you know, it's like listening to, to Coltrane or Thelonious Monk, you know, and it's like, yeah, this is this really specialized language. But if I'm giving that language to somebody who wants three, four chord rock and roll, I've lost them, right. you know, so delivering the social distortion message, <laughs> you know, something that somebody could really hook into has been the most successful part of that program. It's given me probably the most stoke. And as I reflect on it and to see this program grow, um, you know, we've, I think had maybe four or five iterations of the video. The last one, Red Bull got on board and Travis Rice. And, you know, it grew from a Utah thing to a national thing, now to an international thing. And I think Know Before You Go is in something like 12 or 15 languages. And it is, it's just been a remarkable thing. The biggest thing though, man, is that I know this program is successful because the people who deliver it have the passion because they know it saves lives. And at the end of the day, that's really the thing that warms my soul, man. That's awesome. So, so who are some of these other key players that are involved in this at, at this stage? At this stage, well, you know, our friends organization mm -hmm. really started to take it over, and uh, he is the the ex director of our nonprofit friends. Paul Daigle really helped to propel this as well, and, and was a driving force. So he was great. My editor, uh, Trent Meisenheimer, has been a, a very instrumental. Uh, force in this, you know, he's a 30 something year old, you know, he's a young dude. So he gets what that delivery should look like, what it should sound like. So it's great having him on board. And then we still have a great farm team of, you know, patrollers and mountain guides and people who just want to get out there, talk to the public and, and deliver a solid message. And, and that's the beauty of Know Before You Go. I mean, I can take that talk and I can tailor it for a Boy Scout group or I could tailor it for a church group or a ski resort group or a level one or a college group. You know, you interchange a couple of different slides. The video is super solid and you just change your message for what that group is. Nothing's watered down. Just sort of change gears. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's been awesome. Matt. Um, it seems like. You know, just checking out your website, there's a ton of information just on your website. So folks can kind of get a little bit of a taste there. And then organizations can reach out to know before you go, right? And, yeah, and request right. a presentation to come to them. Exactly. Correct? So, you know, folks could either get that through utahavalanchecenter.org or know before you go has its own website, kbyg.org. So that's a, another way. And you know, I think spreading the avalanche gospel through this methodology, through this delivery system, 
you know, I mean, we look at the track record and uh, no reason to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we got a free thing that, uh, and that's the beauty of it is that it's free. Yeah, it's amazing. So, yeah, so we got a free thing and uh, just being able to distribute that to anybody who needs it. You know, I mean, really, th that's the key. I think what's made this program really successful is that not only does it talk a basic language, but it talks to everybody. And if we look at the history of, of avalanche education, you know, especially 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we would identify kind of uh, very small niche groups, you know, but now these niche groups are getting more mainstream. So it isn't just, you know, some some long haired dude in leather telly boots and uh, a pair of, uh, oh, I don't know, Kazamas or something, <laughs> you know? I mean, now it's like, it's so mainstream. And what makes this successful is being able to deliver it to a mainstream audience. Because then everybody buys into the avalanche message. You know, it is, it's the hunter, it's the hiker, it's the winter trail runner, mm -hmm. you know, it's the snowshoer, it's the snowmobile or snowboarder, it's um, somebody who leaves a ski area boundary gates. So, you know, it, it, it at one time, I think, was a very specific to a very small niche group. And now to introduce this to everybody. And as I said, you know, um, Having that same analogy, when I was a kid growing up on the East Coast, I could have thrown a softball into the ocean from my house. And as a kid and as a surfer, I learned about waves and tides and riptides and undertow. I mean, it was just part of our culture. And I thought that that is something that was desperately needed here in Utah as well. And again, if we just keep that to a small group, then those groups that are left out don't think that they're going to need this awareness. Whereas anybody who's headed into the mountains needs at least basic avalanche awareness under their belt. Sure. Um, I, I have to say the production quality in the latest No Before You Go is just freaking amazing. <laughs> right on. So, I mean, you just press play and you're immediately captivated. It is. It's like watching a TGR movie and then... You know, and then you're hitting the face with some really good information. Right on. Yeah. Thanks for that. And, and you know, so much has changed with media now, too. And, and to go back to the TGR days, it was like, man, you know, just to get a new piece of footage. And, and when I was making the video to have, you know, CDs sent to me of just these little clips, and it didn't matter how grainy it was, you mm -hmm. know, it was something new. And now there is just so much of it, you know, that you're able to actually, once it's time to, to edit, you know, and, and you're collecting all this, I mean, you can take the best of the best. So, so much has changed, you know, technology is really helping us as an avalanche community, get this information out to a lot of people mm -hmm. guaranteed it's saving lives. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> any, really any like cool. success stories you can highlight, like anybody, do people come up to you and say like, Hey, I, I took your no before you go program when I was in sixth grade and, you know, yes. 10 years later. Yes. And that is the most rewarding thing. You're absolutely right. And, uh, I, I experienced that so many times throughout a winter. Um, I remember the first couple of times and it was as the program was launching maybe into, in, into its second year and I, I remember one guy coming up to me in particular. I was uh, walking out of a trailhead in Little Conway Canyon. And he says, hey, man, I just got to tell you. And you're always wondering where that's going. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my God, is it the summer concert story? <laughs> you know, I, where does this guy know me from? So um, and he's like, you know, I took your no before you go class and my girlfriend and I last year were up on a ridge, you know, and we're looking around and he's like, and it, a few of the things that you said just stuck in my head. And he's like, you know what? This isn't worth it. You know, let's just kind of shred this low angle slope. We're good. Different aspect, that kind of thing, you know, and it was one of those heartwarming moments where I walk away and I'm like, wow, you know, I've affected somebody's life. This program has affected somebody's life. 
And, you know, it, it happens literally dozens of times a year now. And, and it is so remarkably rewarding, you know, and, and again, it's, it's that feeling that you know that something that you created has given so much back to a community that it's really made a difference. And, and there are countless times that people have said, Oh yeah, I went to your talk or I saw your video. And it's like, wow, man, that rocks. Yeah. So yeah, it is really cool. But I tell you, and it never gets old. Right. But there were those first couple of times, you know, when you're wondering, man, is this really making a difference? And boom, right between the eyes, I got it. And boy, talk about a heartwarming feeling. Super sincere. Yeah, it was wonderful. So not only that sort of recognition, but you guys uh, got some recognition. It was an official selection for the Banff Mountain Film Festival, right? Yeah, how cool was that? Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, no, before you go, the the video. Um, Yeah, was a finalist in the the, uh, Banff Film Festival, which is really cool, you know, to think like, wow, avalanche awareness has has gotten to that level, Mm -hmm. you know. And again, I, I have to credit... Uh, all of these people, you know, Bruce and Trent and Paul and Travis Rice, all these people who have, who have dedicated this time to realize that they want to share the passion of, of their sport and they want to do that safely. It's not a secret handshake. It's not some, oh, well, they'll just figure it out kind of thing. I mean, you know, the information's out there. Why don't we share it? Yeah. And uh, it's everybody putting their time and their passion, their dedication. And uh, it's it's really, it's a beautiful thing, man. That's great. Yeah. Um, any, so, so you mentioned you, people can find this at kbyg.org. Exactly. kbyg.org. Do you, do you have any other social media outlets for the program? You know, I think that's about what we've got going on right now. I know that we push it out primarily uh, through our forecast at utahavalanchecenter.org, but I think for more mainstream and uh, for folks really wanting to, to latch onto that in the outside world, KBYG is probably uh, your best one-stop shop for that. Right. Yeah. Um I've noticed that you guys are, are you working on any other media projects? I, I noticed, I think Trent put it together, the knowledge is powder video that I was just checking out. Yeah. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So kind that focused on the, more on, the mechanized on, riding. Yeah. More on snowmobiles. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was a project Trent and I put together maybe four summers ago, mm-hmm. which was, you know, kind of had that no before you go feeling, but more designed for sledders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have got a really great partnership. We're super deeply embedded with the sled community here. And it's, man, it has been a great thing because they support avalanche outreach and education. And, you know, what's interesting about us here is uh, we really have three forecasts that are specific for sledders. So the Logan Area Mountains, the Western Uintas, and the Manti Skyline. You know, even though the wording is and, and the message is is for everybody, um, I would say that it's a little more sled heavy, mm-hmm. you know. And since that's a primary user group there, we, we try to deliver that message. Uh, so and, and what that looks like is that, you know, six inch wind slab to a skier of order, you know, I mean, something like that could work you. Right. Uh, a six inch, a 12 inch wind slab to a sledder is nothing. Yeah. You grab a fistful of throttle, you yeah. know. And I realized that through forecasting and interfacing with these groups, really like a, a two foot, a three foot hard slab is sort of nothing. So, man, you got to, you know, to keep your cred, you sort of have to word it. There's a, a tenuous balance with mm. your wording. Yeah. You know, so what uh, oftentimes I, I will say is that, yeah, you know, this this wind slab might boss you around if you're a skier. You know, a sledder is probably nothing. But hey, remember, avalanches are a big sign of unstable snow. So you can still kind of reel everybody into your message. But knowledge is powder has been a great uh, conduit for us 
to specifically target motorized users. And uh, yeah, they seem to uh, be very open to that message. Yeah. not just fun, fun stuff. Not just snowmobilers, but probably uh, uh, snow bikes as well these snow days. Snow bikes are it's the next huge. big thing, man. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting about snow bikes is that they would see terrain a lot differently than a sledder. Mm-hmm. And have no problem with very technical terrain and kind of half pipey terrain and that sort of thing. Whereas we would be looking at that like, Oh my God, terrain trap, you know, and man, that looks super sketchy. You get on a snow bike and you're side hilling pretty quick and you are in technical terrain really um, with probably not the kind of time in the saddle or the skill set that it would take if you were a sledder. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, kind of crazy. Probably yeah. the next trend in some of the things that we're going to be seeing um, that we're going to have to, you know, definitely make sure we're on it with our messaging. And interestingly enough, the 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 crossover from from snow bikes often materializes from dirt bikes. So you'll see that, okay, I ride a dirt bike in the summer. I ride a snow bike in the winter. Whereas, you know, sledders often come from kind of like, oh, yeah, I used to ski. Now my knees don't work, that kind of thing, but still love the snow. Mm -hmm. So have at least maybe been around that environment. And maybe that's where we're going to see a little bit different kind of trends. Sure. We'll have to keep our eye on that. Yeah. (laughs) Are you seeing a lot more of it in the Uintas and... I see it more on some of the smaller approaches. The one Achilles heel for a snow bike, like are long approaches, right. you know, and, and in the Uinta is just the lay of the land. Um, some of the approaches can really be arduous, 15, 20 miles, mm-hmm. you know, where you're just like on kind of slow elevation grain, gain rather, uh, where you're just going 70 miles an hour on, on corduroy, you know, mm-hmm. until you can get in, into some, some nice boondocking, that sort of thing. I would say some of the more side canyon places of the Western UN is I'm starting to see more snow bikes. We're seeing them more on the Manti skyline, more down in Moab and the LaSalle's, and I think a little bit more up in Logan as well. So you know, I, I bet you they start, we start seeing more and more of them. You know, it's not like you pull up in a trailhead and it's like, what is that thing? You know, it's, it's kind of, uh, while maybe not quite mainstream, it's, it's, it's getting right there. On, it's getting there. It's right on the verge. Yeah. How about for you personally, you know, it's a, it's a powder day. You got a day off. Are you going to go skiing or sledding these days? Well, you know, I'm not a motorized guy. (laughs) I do it for my job. I do it for my approaches. And I do it because I know that I can connect with with my user group. You know, man, I am a skier. I have been ever since I was three years old. So, I mean, that (laughs) is in my blood. That's in my soul. And I will always grab my skis and my skins and I'm out the door. And that's... That's where my passion lies. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly it's it's huge to it's a huge user group out there and I mean you have to connect with them. You I mean, got to connect with them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I've heard it I've heard it said before, you know, in um mechanized specific avalanche education, you know, how it's a little bit off-putting for all these skiers to come up and I think somebody at ISSW last year called it all oh, the puffy jacket, the puffy jacket circle. Like everybody shows up in their puffy jacket. Right. And it's just like, a, you know, a little bit of a standoff. And and uh, so I commend you for relating to a different user group that you don't necessarily identify with Yeah, um, at heart, but th- that's huge. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't at heart. And, you know, when I was a patrolman at Brighton, uh, there was a trend for a while of young snowboarders getting caught and killed in avalanches. And so I took it upon myself to start doing employee avalanche awareness talks. And, you know, like two, uh, we would do two annual talks for the resort, you know, and I would always reach out to the snowboarders. And, you know, at that time, um, I was sort of a, I was sort of a countercultural dude. (laughs) I was a young ski patrolman. I was the only one on the patrol on telemark gear. 
And uh, so I think that the boarders there saw me as, as a little bit of a different character and somebody they could relate to, you know, even though I was on two planks and not one. And I started a conversation and a dialogue with them. And I quickly realized that you got to get over the vehicle. And either this is about saving lives and this is about avalanche education or or you're doing, maybe we're just in the wrong business, you know, and that has got to be the bottom line. So while sledding might not be my, my number one thing or my priority, I realize that it's an at-risk user. Mm-hmm. And I realize that the relationships that I have created and formed over my 18 years with the Avalanche Center are really strong and solid. And we, we get this amazing support from this community. And I think it's more along the lines of, you know, maybe we move around the mountains a little bit differently, but to be able to deliver that message. And you know what? I'm not the greatest sledder in the world, but I know what snow feels like underneath my sled. And I know it feels a lot different than it does underneath my skis. And knowing how to relate that is is really huge. Mm-hmm. And then for my classes, you know, I've put in a lot of great athletes and a lot of great spokespeople who can uh, walk the walk. And that's really where where the connection comes to play. Right. So that that's been the that's been the the rewarding thing there. Nice. Yeah, yeah, really cool actually. So Craig, you've had a you've had a long and colorful avalanche career. And, colorful uh, indeed <laughs> <laughs> any any uh formative experiences you want to share any close calls or aha moments you know where a light bulb went off in your head and it kind of changed the way you do things and operate in the mountains yeah probably a, a couple aha moments you know and uh probably the biggest one was as as a young avalanche guy having that that epiphany that the avalanche didn't know that I was the avalanche expert, you know, didn't know I was the avalanche dude. And um, one day in particular, I was uh, out, you know, with my route partners and we had a, a pretty substantial storm in Big Cottonwood Canyon. We're getting some pretty good results, but um, it's all within the storm snow, you know, and you're kind of like a young avalanche guy. And it's like, oh, I don't think I'll throw a shot there. I'll just ski cut it. You know, I mean, you, you get to experience that all under your feet. And, um, you know, we got done with routes that day and some partners of mine and I were going to go for a ski tour. And we took our our resort mentality and brought that into the backcountry. And man, you know, it, it was a couple hours into our tour. Um, we had been skiing some south facing slopes. All was good. We swung around. We just uh, we changed aspect. Actually, changed compass orientation. Got on something with a little more east, a little more north. Really didn't pick up on it. I was with some strong young dudes, man. We were charging and, you know, I I triggered a hard slab about 150 feet above me, strained me through some trees. You know, I came out on top, beat up uh, and and the aha moment, you know, I think was probably later that night, like, oh, crap, you know, here's the deal, <laughs> right? I mean... We kind of took this 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 mindset of being in the resort into the backcountry. So mistake number one, we changed aspect. You know, none of us clued into that because we were having such a bitchin' ski day. And it's like, you know, number two. And it's just like, you know, when Ian McCammon talks about the heuristic traps and the familiarity and, you know, and this kind of stuff. And when we see the correlations that avalanche accidents have, have rather with the, um, with the airline industry, you know, you start to see how one or two mistakes, all of a sudden, they might not be happening back to back. But it's like they're emboldening you or they're allowing you to get that much further into the avalanche dragon's den, 
you know, and and it was just those couple of things and not picking up on that. That as I reflect, it's like, holy crap, dude, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're skiing inside the resort boundary, you know, and you're triggering avalanches there. So what did you think was going to happen in the backcountry? You change aspect. Nobody's doing any sort of, you know, snow analysis or anything. So luckily for me, you know, I got to eat a big piece of humble pie early on in my career. Mm-hmm. And so what that did is that I realized, you know what longevity with this with this gig is all about toning it down. And I reflect a lot as uh, when I was a surfer that you know, it might not be the biggest gnarliest day that always has the best surf. You know, maybe it's the the cleanest sort of chest high, shoulder high and on in a break or on a break that hardly ever goes off. And that's where you go. So I relate that to skiing, you know, and I relate that to the backcountry. And yeah, maybe it's not always the steepest, gnarliest, raddest line. Maybe it's having some fun and cranking out a bunch of turns in the sunshine and waiting for that steep, gnarly line to settle out because that will always be there, you know, and then you just come back to it when the time is right. And it, it is so easy early on in, in this in this gig, in this business to uh, get a lot of confidence. And man, I, I had heard that from generations of avalanche professionals. And I think until it happens to you, you you don't get it. Well, you're not getting the direct feedback, right? Never. Yeah. No, that's why this is so tricky. You know, it's like like a DUI, (laughs) you know? I mean, if every time you, you know, you drove when you were buzzed, right? You got pulled over and you got locked up. Well, how many times would you be doing that? Yeah. You know, or every time, you know, you you drove a nail into a into a two by four, you hit your thumb. I mean, how many times would you be doing that? Right. So it's those types of things. But I think a lot of times in these types of recreational occupations where you're doing something you're passionate about, there's a lot of camaraderie and there's a lot of stoke maybe some of that is lost. And that's why it is so important. Um, what you're doing is is so huge and being able to share these stories from generation to generation is really, really huge because I, I think once we're missing that, then not only are we missing a piece of the puzzle, but then we also get a, a little more complacent. And in this business, man, a little bit of complacency could uh, really ruin your day. Yeah. You know, something I've been thinking about lately is is not seeing turning around as a failure. I think in our culture, and me personally, I you know, if I don't meet an objective, I feel like I've failed. But what I've been trying to do is is celebrate the decisions to turn around, you know, and sure, not, and not sure. see that as a failure and and really see that as the success is, is making a good decision. And maybe, maybe it would have been fine, but you know, I, I went against what I wanted to do, which is ski powder. Right. I turned around and I found some safer terrain. Yeah. And you know, the safer terrain thing, I actually think you're more savvy in that regard is to be able to look at something and say, Oh, that's the safe place. Mm-hmm. I could be over there on that slope on this given day, you know, maybe I don't even know how to have to know how to spell avalanche, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, I would have all my gear and I would be thinking um, avalanches. But, you know, to be in a place where you know that your decisions are so solid based on fact, based on analysis, Rather than to be in a place and think, oh, yeah, we sort of got away with that today. That to me is an uncomfortable place to be. And when I'm out on the snow, I want that. You know, that's my happy place. Whether I'm at work or whether I'm recreating or there's, you know, somewhere those worlds are meshing and, and weaving in between. But we want to be in this place. And I think as avalanche professionals, we also want to to radiate 
that that confidence as well. Not in a cocky way, but in a very solid, decisive way. And it's like, you know, you run into people on the trailhead and it's like, yeah, I'm going to ski over there until that other side settles out. It's a patience game, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I come back to the analogy of surfing, you know, and it's like rolling up to a break and I look out and it's clean and it's offshore and it's shoulder high and it's just all oh, these clean barrels. And I notice like, oh, there's some fins swimming around there, right? So I should really know, are those shark fins? Or those dolphin fins, <laughs> you know, the dolphins, I can, uh, I can rock with them, but man, the sharks, I'm going to wait for them you know, to, to figure out another place and, and then I'll dive in the water. So, you know, if we're going out and, and we are, are not cognizant of whether we're swimming with sharks or dolphins, man, at the end of the day, at the end of the year, somewhere in our career, yeah, we're going to get bit for sure. Yeah, that's a great analogy. (laughs) You know, kind of the stony surf thing. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, well, Craig, do you have any any other shout outs you want to give to any sponsors or folks that have made grants possible for the No Before You Go program? You know, we have had so many awesome, awesome sponsors to help get this off the ground. And I would totally be remiss because I, I would have to have that that list mm. in front of me. I would say probably uh, my greatest shout out would be to Bruce Tremper. And Bruce gave me an opportunity to work with the Utah Avalanche Center. He trusted me on so many levels just to take the ball and run with it. So, you know, with the creation of Know Before You Go and with the creation of the the Are You Beeping um, Avalanche signage, um, the, the beacons at the trailheads and to create that and this year, we're on our 10th annual Utah Snow and Avalanche Workshop, which you and I were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. which has grown from about 150 people to over 700 people. And, you know, Bruce trusted me to just take that and run with it and make it happen. And uh, he, um, even though there's other people involved, but it was really Bruce as a boss and in a in a truly remarkable relationship that, man, if you ever get... That kind of opportunity to have that in your job, really feel fortunate because uh, it's rare that that happens in somebody's career. And I got to live it and I, I live what I love and I love what I live, you know, so it's a it's just an awesome gig. Awesome. Well, I'm sure I speak for the whole community. And when I say thank you for all the work that you've done to for this outreach and, and getting the message out there and and undoubtedly you've you've saved lives so i'm sure you feel good about that but but thanks for all the work that you man i am honored i'm honored to be part of this community i'm honored to be sitting here with you tonight and and thanks for helping me share that it's an awesome experience absolutely well thanks craig for being on the show and cheers rock on cheers thank you my friend yeah there you have it Thanks for listening. Rate and review us on iTunes. Sign up for our newsletter, leave feedback, and buy some swag for stocking stuffers at our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Don't forget to enter our guide glove giveaway. Music today was performed by Sun Squabby, Broke for Free, and Light Blow, made possible by the generous permission of the artists or courtesy of freemusicarchive.com and made possible by the Creative Commons license. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks as always to the support of TAS Gazex, things that go bump in the night. Want to learn more about how remote avalanche control systems work? Head on over to www.tas.fr to learn more about the Gazex, Obelex, and Daisy Bell systems. Tune in next time on the 15th for the first part of a two-part story about the birthday shoots avalanche. Two friends and ski partners recount their hair-raising tale of survival from a very large deep slab avalanche. We will release the second part one year to the day of the avalanche on December 19th. Until next time, stop whining about the lack of snow, get out there anyways, get in shape, 
practice beacon drills, map the snowpack. Keep having fun and stay safe out there. <laughs>